Uh, and so if you've never been to Encounter before, Encounter is our Sunday adult education. Um, we have the privilege, like I said during service, of having Rolf Geiling with us. If you haven't seen the Independent, he is the cover story written himself. Amazing. Praise God. What an amazing witness and testimony to our whole community. And uh, we're so thankful to have you here. I'm just going to pray and then hand it over to Ralph. God, thank you that you indeed show us your glory. We can't, most of the time we can't comprehend it. We can never fully understand it, but we can be a witness to it in both small and large ways. So God, would you use this time for your glory? Thank you for Rolf and for Rob and for the stories and testimonies that they will bring. Would you bless them immeasurably? We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Nikki. Well, great to be with you. as I mentioned, I, I, you know, this is kind of fortuitous timing. I've been working on that little story. So this is, this is just how pretty shark habitat looks. Uh, very bucolic. And, uh, but anyway, um, no, thanks for reading kind of just part of my story. It's kind of like, uh, you know, it's kind of I've, I view life as, uh, yeah, we just kind of all limp along. And uh, part of my process of uh, just dealing with grief and trauma has been to be around other people who are limping around. And as we talked about a little bit last week, that it's like the, you know, the beauty of healthy recovery is we are transparent about our weaknesses. And, you know, I kind of tell people, you know, the same, same God that is delivering them from drug and alcohol addiction has spared me that, but yet we all have stuff. And, uh, um, but, um, as I've said, as I kind of introduced myself last week, I am not a clinician. I am not trained in drug and alcohol recovery, but for 15 years I've worked uh, kind of to provide resources and to make sure that a team doing that has what they need. And so um, my process, I feel like, on a weekly basis is an ongoing education uh, of just learning from people as I observe them. And uh, because there really is this level of incredible genius uh, in lived experience. And uh, whether it's one of my program directors or uh, one of my staff, there's just times where I just uh, hear and observe uh, incredible genius that has come. And that, that genius, that those lessons are learned at a, at a steep price um, uh, for a lot of our people that the stories that what they've come through is, uh, uh, is significant. But as I, um, you know, I have kind of, I, we had such a great discussion last time, so I don't have a lot of content to produce. But one of the things that I said last week when I brought Nikki is um, it's very important when we're discussing addiction and when we're talking about it is to realize that uh, it, is, it is something that uh, uh, human beings are getting caught up on in. And Denny Wayman has always kind of said something that stuck with me. Uh, just about the fact that the way we view things is, you know, as the church, you make a decision as to whether or not you want to view it as moral, legal, but he said, you know, kind of it just becomes helpful when you start viewing every human being as a precious child of God uh, and then letting your actions uh, and how you approach the situation uh, really be driven by that, that how do we come alongside somebody that God views as precious and love them. So with me... uh, I have an expert and an also precious child of God, Rob Duncan, who uh, has uh, 
been is courageous enough to share his story with us. He graduated, and this is kind of last week we had Nikki share her speech, and uh, I wanted to start kind of just by getting us centered on kind of a human story by having Rob come share. So Rob, glad you're here. Why don't you come on up? Hello, everybody. <laughs> Thank you for inviting me out here. Um, my name is Robert Duncan, and I work at the Santa Barbara Rescue Mission in the Homeless Guest uh, Services. Uh, I've been doing that for approximately 15 months, and I'm a graduate of the program, and this is my story. Um, this is confirmation that the program that I went through works, and all the hard work that everyone has contributed to me standing before you today. I was born in Oxnard, California in 1970, and I was raised by my grandparents and my mother in Camarillo, California. And for the most part, I had a normal childhood. I grew up in a nice neighborhood. I had good friends, and I took to sports like a duck to water. It's back when I had hair and teeth, but that's a long time ago. Well, hair and like my own teeth. Uh, when I was eight years old, my father remarried, and I would spend weekends and my summers with, with my newfound family. Uh, this is where my life took a turn for the worse. Uh, trauma can come in many forms. In my case, it came from a stepmother. Um, yeah, bad stuff. Uh, who was abusive to me in the worst kind of way. Uh, this took place for a couple of years, and when I was seven years old, I spoke up, and all of that stopped. Um, yeah. I started uh, acting out at school and at home. Uh, this is when I discovered marijuana at seven years old, seven, and alcohol. Uh, it was a way to escape the way that I was feeling inside. Uh, I did not trust adults, especially women. And when I got into high school, I felt like I was getting a little better socially, and I put all of my time and attention to sports and partying. Uh, I potentially was more popular than I realized. But that time in my life, it was very hard for me to get close to people. Um, yeah. Um, let's see here. Uh, I only had a couple of really good friends, and we just filled our time with using drugs and isolating from the rest of the pack. It was very tough for me. Uh, after high school, I was working for a security company in Los Angeles, and my drug use was starting to get out of control. Uh, yeah, I was almost 20 years old at this time, and with no real plan or even motivation, and my father had suggested that I joined the military, and at this point in my life, I was aware that I needed to do something. Uh, three months later, I was in boot camp at MCRD in San Diego, and after signing the contract to be a Marine. After graduating boot camp, I attended military combat training and on to School of Infantry in Camp Pendleton, California. I had finally found what I was looking for. I loved being a soldier. Being in the infantry allowed me to train in many different countries. There was absolutely no drug use or even thought of using drugs at this time in my life. Um, alcohol was my new friend, and I always kept it close. In 1990, my regiment was ordered to Saudi Arabia. As a result of the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait, I served in Operation Desert Storm in a unit called Task Force Ripper. Um, I was a combat veteran at 21 years old. When I got back to my unit in 29 Palms, California, I met a girl who attended college at Berkeley, and soon after dating, she was pregnant. I have no idea how that happened, but it did. Uh, <laughs> Hey, uh, yeah, yeah, okay, so I, I, tried, I tried to do the right thing, and we were married, and when 
uh, when she was six months pregnant. Uh, we moved into base housing together in 29 Palms, and shortly after that, she gave birth to my daughter, Kayla. I had never seen anything. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I had never seen anything so beautiful. A few years later, we moved to Camarillo and lived in a condo uh, that I rented while I was still in active service. I was absent from the family dynamics uh, most of the time due to being in a unit that was deployable, so, which meant that I was uh, gone for months at a time training. Uh, this took a strain on the marriage, and we both decided that it was better to separate and allow her and my daughter to go back east with her family. Uh, this was definitely one of those moments in time that should have been a warning sign to me that things would that would ultimately transpire. Uh, I did see my daughter for a couple of years after that, and then they moved away, and I was very young and very selfish. After my service was up, I obtained my honorable discharge. I moved to Camarillo and tried to pick up the pieces. I started working construction job uh, with a few friends of mine, and the party and picked up where I left off. Uh, the war had definitely changed me, and I was suffering from PTSD. Uh, not only from my childhood, but from my actions in combat and the things that I had seen and done. Uh, I was very young when I experienced what people can do to other people in war. I carried the guilt and the anger with me wherever I went. Yeah, still do sometimes, but I could not drink or do enough drugs to silence the disturbance which was going on inside of me. My 30s and 40s were spent bouncing around from state to state and from relationship, relationship to relationship trying to rebuild uh, uh, some type of life that I allowed to become broken. Uh, there were times in my life when I would try to get clean and sober, and as a result, it just always ended up the same. Uh, I would always go back and destroy anything that I had built up for myself as far as success was concerned. I had a very warped way of looking at life and other people who got in my way. I was a handful. I was in a handful. Well, I was a handful, but I was in a handful of relationships, but it, was, it just always ended up the same. I would either leave or push them away so that they would leave me. Drugs and alcohol became the most important thing in my life. I was not willing to get help for my trauma or my addiction problems. I thought I was really good at getting what I wanted from people. I was getting older and my current construction was over. After my grandparents and mom and dad passed away, I did not have a place to run, run to so that I could get myself well enough to move on. Uh, life was be becoming complicated, and I was using more hardcore drugs than ever before. I ended up rekindling a relationship with a high school sweetheart. I was uh, able to stop using drugs for a short period of time, but eventually I went back to what I knew. She told me that the relationship was over and that I needed to find uh, something to do career-wise. Uh, I had been all around the world twice, and, had vis and I had visited many different countries while in the Marines but never really explored the United States up to this point. I decided to go into trucking as a long-haul driver. I went, into, I went to a truck driving academy in Riverside, California, and I obtained my Class A driver's license. I had stopped using drugs again and drinking again and did very well in the academy and graduated at the top of my class. I started out as a trainee, and a couple of months later, I was in my own freight liner. I picked up another driver from the academy and re-rolled back and forth across the United States for a year, probably a year and a half straight. And when we finally moved on, I drove another year and a half on my own. I had been to every state multiple times, except for Alaska and Hawaii. Uh, the money was pouring in, and after three years of 
being on the road, I started using drugs again. Uh, the insanity was just not going to stop, not on my own anyway. I started to experience psychosis while on the road for long periods of time and decided to stop driving at this point. I was just too dangerous. Um, I was still able to make my runs and had a good reputation with my driver manager who asked me if I wanted to be an instructor at NADA in Cedar Rapids. This was a big time for me. I'm going inside. You know, I'm going to be somebody. I go to Cedar Rapids and they take me to this giant building and I'm up there in the HR department overlooking, you know, not this beautiful, but it was beautiful. And I was like, wow, I did it. This is it. This is all I need. It's got to be money in the job or, or something. Uh, and uh, so I, uh, I moved to Iowa and rented a con- condo in Fairfax. I financed a nice car and basically had enough money to like do what I wanted. I loved teaching. And again, I stopped doing, I stopped doing drugs. I poured my heart and soul into teaching the students at the academy how to maneuver and operate a tractor and trailer. It was something that I was good at and my numbers were high. After a few years of living and working in Iowa as an instructor, I started using drugs again. And uh, the real insanity was I knew that the moment that I started using hardcore drugs that everything that I worked so hard for was going to be gone in a matter of weeks. I've done this in periods of my life. As soon as I go back to that... I know I'm going to lose everything. I know I'm going to hurt myself. I know I'm going to have nothing. I know I'm going to be homeless, but I would do it anyway. It was like I could not compartmentalize that part of my life. Uh, that's how much the pull that I worked so hard for was going to be gone in just like a matter of weeks. Um, I ended up quitting my job before I got myself into a lot of trouble. That's my MO. They know I got to go. I can't be around. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I told the company that I had personal problems in, Cal- in California and that, that I had to deal with, and they were very adamant about not wanting to lose me and, when, and that I had a job waiting for me whenever I wanted to come back. I came to California. I stayed with my best friend Gary for a while. Uh, he has been clean and sober for a long time and has always been there for me. When I would fall apart, I would knock on his door and he would always tell me, okay, Robert, what's your plan? You can stay, but you know you can't use a drink. But what is your plan? Never judge me, ever. Just, just had an open, open mind because he had been through that before. Uh, and for some reason, I left his house one night and went on a run that almost cost me my life. Um, yeah, I had a mild heart attack and ended up in, in the ER in Ventura. I had enough drugs on me to last me for a couple of weeks. I was in the emergency room with EKGs going to the bathroom and doing drugs after a heart attack. Yeah, so I'd given up at this point, um, and I quickly went into psychosis again. Uh, I ended up in Santa Barbara by chance. I lost my backpack, which contained all of my money and my drugs and a few clothing items and hygiene products that I brought with me. In that backpack was my life, you know, was everything. And uh, this was the absolute lowest point in my life, and I knew that if I didn't get help, I, I was going to die. I came to the rescue mission uh, a couple of years ago on November 20th and with one week clean. I had not eaten in several days and I could not uh, shake the voices in my head. I can remember being in LB's office. LB Chandler is the director and you have to pretty much get through him to be able to go into the program. And I was looking at him and I was telling him that, hey, this is not what I look like. This is not who I am, you know. And... uh, I want to be very clear that this program changed my life. 
uh, it has not only strengthened me as a man, but it allowed me to grow spiritually and become a productive member of society again. Um, the groups and the one-on-ones are amazing. The Bible studies that are offered here reconnected my faith. Uh, the Learning Center allowed me to perform tasks that were reconnecting me to the business community. All of the case managers are former graduates and have a very unique style in getting you to believe in yourself. Um, my therapy sessions with Hillary were truly eye-opening for me. I learned that I was suffering from PTSD, not only from my combat experience, but my childhood trauma as well. She was, in, she was very instrumental in getting me to believe in myself and had a way of making me understand that it wasn't my fault. Uh, the program introduced me to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I obtained a sponsor. His name is JP, and he walked me through the 12 steps. I learned about my disease thoroughly. All of the AA meetings that I have attended have strengthened me and allow me to help others who are new. And that's what I do. I work with Roberts every day. Every day. I work with people just like me that I used to be, you know. And uh, I'm very passionate about it. It's one of the hardest jobs I've ever had. It's a very stressful, heavy job. But um, I don't think it's my penance. I'd said that before. It's my way of giving back. It's my way of maybe bringing a few more guys out there that were like me that are broken and show them, you know, talk about Christ, talk about the program, talk about God, plant these little tiny seeds in them, and it's just amazing. This year-long program uh, has changed me for the better. I do take responsibility for my actions today. I give all honor and glory to God. Yeah. Yeah. He's given me the opportunity to better myself. I don't do things perfectly, but what I believe in is perfect. I was given the opportunity to become a staff member. Um, it says, this was kind of an older speech that I did at graduation. So, yeah, it's been a while, okay? It's been, I've been there approximately 16 months. So, I was lucky they graduated me early. At eight and a half months, I became staff. And put into, you know, at there you are a, um, you learn real quick that that it's not. I can remember talking with Rolf. Uh, they took me out to lunch when I was working in admin, and I remember talking about this and I'm doing this and I'm doing this. And he just said something off cuff. He's like, you know, Rob, it's not about you. And I thought, well, but no, what do you mean it's not about me? <laughs> now that I've worked here long enough to know, you know what? It's right. It's not about me. It's not about me. It's, it's about how I can be of service to others, and that's, that is the amazing thing of it. Um, and again, I work for the Homeless Guest Services as an assistant and work with the homeless who stay here at our facility. It gives me the opportunity to give back what was so freely given to me. I want everyone to know here today that I have a relationship with my daughter again, uh, something that I thought was broken. It, uh, yeah. Gosh, so emotional day. Uh, it, 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 um, it turns out to the begin. It turns out to be the beginning of something miraculous. I'm positive that this would not have happened if I had not come to the Santa Barbara Rescue Mission. I didn't have much choice. I really didn't, and I didn't think it was going to be like this. I tried things before. I would always fail because you have to be all in whenever you go into recovery. You can't have measure anything. I learned a few things that, that life is action. 
my will is my thinking and God's will is God's thinking. And I used to get those twisted up. I used to think that I needed something to make me happy. I heard something the other day that said, people can't make you happy. They can make you a cup of coffee, but they can't make you happy. And I was like, wow, that was me. I was always looking for that. You know, happiness is a state of mind for me. I'm not shooting for that. I'm, I'll shoot for contentment all day long. Happiness, we like know when to be happy because we're happy moments. But what do we do when we're not feeling it? And, 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 and life is getting tough because life is tough. But uh, I just give honor to God. I get on my knees every morning. I get on my knees every night. And I thank God that 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 I get a chance to be able to help other people. Uh, I cannot remember a time in my life when I felt so free and blessed. I do not carry the 800-pound gorilla on my back anymore. And uh, i just like to thank uh, everybody for listening to my story. It's tough. I'm still emotional about it, as you can see. But uh, I don't use it as an excuse to not do anything anymore. My job now is to help others. And so thank you so much for coming out and listening. Thanks, Robbie. Can't imagine why that story would make you emotional. <laughs> Gosh, you know. Um, yeah, like I said, it is, you know, one of the things that uh, you'll remember from last week, talked about the fact that the common theme, the most common theme I can uh, hear in stories of people at the rescue mission is that of trauma and how we respond. Life is brutal, and uh, um, there's all different kind of ways that uh, that uh, can take hold and wreak havoc in our lives. So, um, and the work of recovery is extremely intimate and personal. And uh, you know, kind of one thing I'm grateful for, and one of the things I think our program program has the outcomes it does, is because we're able to work so intensively with men and women who are willing to uh, give us a year. Um, but I think what I want to talk about a little bit today is just um, some larger kind of. I was trying to figure out where to go. We could go for a lot more than two weeks on it, but maybe some larger macro-level issues we're dealing with. Because one of the things that I've realized with our team is that um, there is this complexity that we're endeavoring to do. And on the one hand, as the church, we need to just continue to have hope for the person in front of us and say, okay, how are we going to help them? But um, as we've realized, and as kind of I talked about last week, that you really can't, if you're engaging in uh, addiction, Um, you have to look at kind of behavioral health. You have to look at medical issues. You have to look at, so kind of as, as our staff has been thinking about where we go next, um, I've kind of been aware of some larger forces that we just need to be aware of when we're dealing with addicts. So just my definition of addiction again is the repeated involvement with a substance or activity, despite substantial harm it now causes because that involvement was, and may continue to be pleasurable and valuable. So, um, you know, that's, that's just the one textbook definition I had. But I want to talk about kind of some real forces in play that kind of, uh, I think, factor into kind of when we're trying to help addicts. Um, that just is the reality of what we're dealing with. First, drugs have never been more potent than they are now. Um, you know, if, uh, you know, Marijuana in the 1970s, um, actually up until 1995, uh, was kind of crudely grown. Uh, THC content in marijuana up until about 1985 was 4%. Um, Now, with a larger industry going at it, guess what's happened? The marijuana now, 
uh, has THC contents of, I mean, standards is about 18%, which is four times more powerful. There have been strains that have been about 30%. Um, and as they're grown, so you're talking about six times more powerful than uh, what kids were smoking in the 70s. Also, um, you know, the, you hear about CBDs, THC, CBD is kind of the, you know, less psychoactive product. Uh, there are strains being grown where that ratio is down. So historically, marijuana had a ratio of about 14 to 1, CB, uh, THC to CBD, and now there are strains where it's 80 to 1. So it's this very concentrated uh, substance that is acting on our brain. If we look at uh, methamphetamine, you know, probably around the 2000, started to get really hard to buy Sudafed because people were realizing it was kind of being cooked. You break down ephedrine. Um, uh, and, you know, it was made you know, by biker gangs in bathtubs was typically the story. Now it's made in labs and uh, there are kind of all different kind of substances, uh, you know, offshore. Um, and, uh, you know, the P2P meth, which they call it now, just is, used to be like, even when I first got to the rescue mission that we would see people come in uh, with, you know, kind of meth brain, they called it, but just people that were just a little bit, you know, out of there. Well, after they stopped using, it was, uh, that would, you know, quite often clear up. Now there's real permanent damage being done to people's brains. And if you talk to law enforcement, if you talk about homeless tent cities in Los Angeles, that's kind of, you know, a lot of what we see here in the rise in mental illness, even in Santa Barbara, um, there's just, it's hard to train what that is, but people have taken substances that, uh, you know, it just doesn't stop work. It just doesn't stop affecting you uh, when you stop using. It is kind of permanent, uh, you know, issues in the brain chemistry that have happened. And also, obviously, we know about opioids that, you know, opioids used to be kind of opium and heroin. And now, um, you know, with the opioid epidemic, uh, synthetic opioids, morphine, Oxycontin, you know, all the way up to fentanyl now um, are all lab produced. And, uh, um, you know, even with, you know, one of the huge issues we have right now are offshore kind of different countries like Mexico or China start, you know, banning substances and chemists can very quickly alter the molecular structure just a little bit. Um, and so obviously you're dealing with things that are extremely dangerous, you know, as, as we see a lot of fentanyl abuse in the, you know, fentanyl is at, the, at that point, nobody's taking it to get high anymore. It is just because their body is craving opiate, opioids and it's the best way to get it. But um, extremely dangerous substances out there. Um, one of the things that uh, I've been aware is just this battle of brain chemistry, a really good book. Um, Sam Quinones wrote The Least of Us, and he also wrote Dreamland just about it. He's a very good journalist, writes really well about kind of uh, what's going on kind of in, you know, communities as far as drugs. And, you know, I, so I've really kind of realized, too, that, you know, I... I I love Jesus, I love the gospel, he has power to transform, but we just realized that you just can't be giving people a bunch of Bible verses and hope they make it through. It's, we're really dealing with, you know, kind of brain chemistry, and brain chemistry is powerful. Um, there have been studies shown that, uh, you know, actually Quinones talks about this, that, you know, there are very benign substances like sugar, um, you know, in laboratory rats give, I mean, you know, they they are addictive and rats go through withdrawal when they take them off sugar. And then they've also shown the fact that if a kind of, in a rat study, if they have been programmed that way, that then the propensity of moving on to other addictions uh, is a lot more likely. And so it kind of makes you just, I don't, you know, I'm, 
uh, you know, when we think about how we interact with other substances, what we're eating and what we're ingesting, it's just important to know that that can be mirrored in our own lives. Um, then uh, there's a pill for that. You know, that's a, you know, and I, I, you know, I am a big believer in medical science. Uh, you know, I've had family members, obviously, if you read The Independent, I've been involved with, you know, there's really important medication out there. I, um, but we just have a cultural conditioning that medicine will cure us. You know, if you are going to the doctor, you know, with some kind of a respiratory infection, you know, if you got antibiotics, that appointment accomplished something. You know, if the doctor just says, ah, just go home, you know, it's like, ah, no, you know, but there's something about, did you get drugs? Yeah. Oh, that, that got things done. And I'm, you know, and that's, you know, it's interesting because my mother just had her knee replaced and, you know, last week and, you know, wasn't wanting to take the, you know, the Vicodin they gave her. And, you know, we're like, hey, mom, it's, you know, the doctor's even saying, no, this is what this is for. And we give you enough that you're in serious pain. That's what an opioid does. And, um, and, you know, I just think, you know, it's important to realize, I mean, for me, you know, I've thought about this too, you know, obviously, if you read my story, I've had a few emotional things. And kind of when I went to a counselor and said, hey, can we talk about, you know, these issues, you know, my son died, my wife has ALS, and I got attacked by a shark. <laughs> he just looked at me and said, you know, there's medication that can help you. And I realized, you know, actually, you know, it's like if it gets me to function a little bit to take an antidepressant just so I can, that's a good thing. That's a great use. And I've kind of, you know, been weaning off that now. So it's not to say, but we just really have to understand. But what concerns me a little bit is the entire you know, medical insurance apparatus is best designed to deliver medication. And especially when we're dealing with recovery right now, there's some really important drugs out there, medically assisted treatment. But you just have to realize that, you know, part of what is driving that is, you know, a, it's very hard for a doctor to recommend 12-step groups uh, because, or counseling, they're just a lot more difficult to, so I think we just have to realize, you know, there's just an awful lot kind of this energy of just, you know, that, that the system we rely on for healthcare, which medicine's great, but it's just, it's really designed well uh, to get you to ingest substances. Um, and then uh, another issue, interdependence versus isolation. Um, you know, there's kind of, if you think about just, you know, we value self-sufficiency and we hold special admiration for people who are self-made. We like to get things done ourselves, And there have been, there's been incredible technological innovation to make things really easy. I mean, I love, you know, if I need shoelaces, I just love that I can go on Amazon and they'll be at my doorstep there. It's just fantastic. But, you know, um, but there's just less need for interaction with people. And, you know, you think about even kind of primal, you know, just, you know, communities were formed because people needed to eat, they needed to procreate, they needed to survive. And there is this necessary interdependence that we have um, and, you know, unfortunately, sometimes the time that we save on tasks because of modern innovation doesn't lead to more interaction with people, but just more isolation. And, you know, I think even listening to Robert's story, you hear kind of like, okay, when, you know, when you wanted to kind of, when you were given back over to addiction, you know, isolation really served that well. And so that's kind of a lot of times we say that in recovery as people are relapsing, that before you relapse, the first thing you need to achieve is isolation. And so just realizing that 
the, the line between independence and isolation is very narrow and thin. And you know, I've realized that in, in my own experience that there's just something about grief and trauma that makes you, you know, you're way okay being by myself, but just realizing, okay, there's just times where you need to be around people and you need to get up and do it because people are part of, you know, finding health. So anyway, those are the forces in play. And kind of, so I kind of get thinking about the most hopeful response. And one of the things that I think we have tended to do is, and this is kind of what societies do, is that uh, we hope that there's a sec an established sector that will fix it. And, you know, I mean, I think about, you know, and, and there's always going to be a necessity for institutions to take on other needs that they're not intended for. I mean, one of the things I think about is, you know, if you think about how much of our school education budgets are spent on feeding kids, you know, it's really not what they're intended to do, but it's almost kind of a necessity that, you know, students, you know, are well fed so they can pay attention. And so we kind of have those kind of creeps that, you know, just you have to kind of rely on institutions of pride. And I look at it and think, you know, one of the first things we did was we just thought maybe the criminal justice system could fix, you know. Um, and, you know, obviously that was kind of comes back to what I talked about last time about, you know, uh, addiction is a moral issue and, you know, if you you got to fix the badness in people and you know the problem is is you ask I mean like it's you know 70 to 80 percent of the cases you know in the Santa Barbara court system are somehow related to substance abuse you know not just possession charges but people robbing houses because they need to feed their addiction and you just realize you know any police officer will tell you you're not going to arrest your way out of this problem and you're not going to be able to lock people away. And the good news is, is that criminal justice, there are things like our North County Jail and there's a lot of kind of recovery and self-improvement because they're realizing, you know, locking somebody up, they have to go back into the community and how are we going to, you know, help them. Um, same thing with medical now, I think, you know, kind of I just talked about, there's a pill for that, that you could, you know, have everybody taking, you know, uh, we can look at it, if we look at it exclusively as a medical issue, um, or social services, you know, it's just one of those things that it's, you know, those are all, and we, we work very closely with law enforcement, for instance. We work closely with the medical community because we realize if we're dealing with dual diagnosis mental illness, there are times, I mean, most, most people who come into our program, uh, they talk about having a nudge from the judge. And, you know, there's a point where um, you will not change your life. You will not take action to make change unless the consequences of not changing uh, become more unpleasant than staying the same. And we have seen criminal justice being a really important part. And the fact is outcomes are no different than whether or not somebody walks into the rescue mission on their own and says, I want help. It's like, you know, seeking it. So anyway, we kind of definitely need to interact with those, but thinking that somehow the police are gonna take care of it or the medical community is gonna take care of it. And that really is where I think the role of the church is that, you know, that the church really, when it's living it out, when we're, we are this community that welcomes people. Um, and as I said last week, there's something about, you know, the grace extended in an AA meeting that, you know, to me, it is the church just saying, yeah, you messed up. Life's not going right. We love you. We're glad you're here. Um, and, you know, to minister is to have hope. I always think about Jeremiah where uh, he, you know, goes... God tells him to buy land uh, in, the, in the city that's about to be completely overrun in battle. 
And he says, no, go get, go buy this piece of land. You know, his cousin's excited probably like, really, you're going to buy my land. That's great. You know, but he says, and the whole act of buying land is basically the symbolic thing of saying, no, no, this is, this is going to be viable property someday. And what I feel like we do in ministry at the church is we're looking at human beings and we're saying, no, this, this is not something to be discarded. There's hope here. And you start treating people with dignity. And like Robert said, when he came in and I'm kind of emphatic that, you know, one of the things that is really impressive is we have this huge community of caring people and they do so for different reasons. You know, there's a lot of, you know, very, uh, just altruistic people, you know, that are in what there are times where I sit there looking, boy, why are the humanists kind of, you know, outgracing us? Cause we're the church. This is our, we, we know grace. This is our thing, you know? And I just think the extension, what we can uh, extend to people is powerful in offering community. So I'll stop there. I'd like to just, you know, I, I don't know how we're going to go over a little, I don't know, Nikki, just give me a sign, but uh, I speak to anything, any questions, any comments, any observations. Yeah, Dave. I've heard that regarding brain chemistry, that heroin and alcohol reach to the same brain chemistry, the same endorphins. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably true. I'm not a, you know, all I can say about brain chemistry is I've read articles on it and they seem to make sense to me. I couldn't lecture on it, but, but yeah, it's all about endorphin receptors and, and, uh, yeah. Yeah. Lee. What do you do about, about addicts who have like brain damage? Well, that's really, it's really a challenge. I mean, I think, I mean, one of the things that we do is we are not, we are a licensed recovery facility, so we actually can't treat, we're not certified to treat mental health. And we do have a clinical director. And so what we end up doing is we try to figure out if somebody's coming in, I would say, you know, it's a large percentage of clients that come in with something, I mean, uh, with some kind of mental affect. Um, and so what we'll typically do is see if we can work with another provider to get some stability in there and then address the addiction. And sometimes it comes to the fact, sometimes we just have to acknowledge that somebody's outside our scope. And so we just can't do it. And then it's like, okay, we need to figure out another placement where, um, but you know, it's gotten so intertwined where, you know, I mean, a lot of the, obviously a lot of the, you know, a lot of what we see among the homeless and addict population is self-medication. It's, you know, you talk about voices and, you know, it's, I mean, how many people do you think you see in the shelter that are coming in with mental, mental health challenges? Let's see. Every night, approximately 86 men upstairs and about 40 women on the bottom. So I'm looking at anywhere from 8 to 10 that are in complete psychosis that come in. Mm-hmm. If they can follow the direction, they're able to stay. If they can't, have that's mm-hmm. a relief for the night because there, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few in that on that side because mm-hmm. it can be disruptive and it's just mm-hmm. it'll just yeah 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 I think that the shelter population we have currently it's it's I mean as we do intakes it's about thirty percent have so would say they have some kind of mental illness or issue they're dealing with and I think if you walk around the street sometimes you think gosh that sounds low but yeah yes um several questions so it's hundred and twenty that you're serving in the in the, in the shelter, right? Um, and how many did they, they can come for as many repeated nights as they yeah. need or want? Right now, uh, since since COVID nineteen hit, um, they have extended 
this day is um, there's really no limit. Uh, before, it w I believe it was 10 days on and 10 days out or something like that. But uh, for a while now, since COVID hit, they have just went ahead and extended. So we have a lot of repeats. Um, most of the women that I see, it's, it's trauma, it's mental illness, it's uh, domestic violence, um, broken homes, chronic homelessness, and the men, it's the same thing. It's the same thing, but they're low functioning. Most are low functioning. They like to be homeless. Mm -hmm. They come there, they get a meal, they get a place, we give them clothes, we give them hygiene, and they just, it's just like a revolving door. So we have now uh, have, have a new case manager there. Because see, we don't have a lot of people over there, so that time that they need, that one-on-one -on -one time, I don't have that time. I have too much to do, you know, too much paperwork, too much things to do. I have to make sure that everybody is getting to where they're going and that they're safe and that they go to bed. Um, so now with case management, uh, uh, we are bringing in more of the community, like Doctors Without Walls, and uh, just, um, I guess it's every Wednesday at 8 a.m. We open up the courtyard and we feed the homeless. They can come in and get the services that they need. But again, it's kind of on them. We can't force anybody to do anything. They need to take those steps. And some of them, uh, it's just quite frankly, it's just way beyond their scope. Because they start to do it and then they'll freak out. No, that's not true. So it's it's a lot. It's a lot. It's a variable. And a I'd also say, it's. I mean, one of the things that's always been is variable as far as what an individual's needs. Because, yeah, obviously because of... COVID things have changed, but, you know, and now we have structured case management. We've always done kind of more informal case management and it's just working with people saying, what do they need? And, you know, there's, I think what I'd really like us, I mean, one of the things that I think we need to do as a facility is really individualize for each person. And, you know, there are some people we're seeing so many effects of age and people that can't fend for themselves. And, you know, we're just not going to put a 70 year old woman with dementia out on the street. You know, it's like, we're not, you're not gonna have a 10 day stay, but then we have to figure out what now there are other people that, you know, you have to be more drawn boundaries for, so. Yeah. Can you um, talk about the legalization of marijuana and how that, because I, like one thing, obviously it's sort of destigmatizes yeah. a little bit, mm -hmm. but it also, like these numbers you, you quote about the percentage of THC and stuff, it yeah. seems like a lot of that's driven by the legalization yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I think at least, you know, for the, for the culture of addicts, that we're, I mean, you know, the police used to always say that, you know, marijuana is like the chips and salsa of the, you know, of the, it's like wherever they did the drug bust, you always found pot. And I will say the thing that I'm, I guess, <laughs> makes more sense. I mean, now that we have recreationally legal marijuana, it's better than when we were having kind of the charade of medical marijuana. I mean, because when we first, I mean, I first, there was a, there was a point when we first got medical marijuana that there were more uh, medical marijuana clinics in, or dispensaries in Santa Barbara than there were coffee shops. And, you know, I just, you know, when everybody had a card, you could get a card within, online within minutes. And I mean, the police would sit there, they'd take you on stakeouts and at four o'clock, you would just watch carloads of high school kids getting out. And so, and, and, and that's not to say there, you know, there are, you know, there probably are medical benefits to, you know, to marijuana, but 
it's a very small subset, you know, that, I mean, considering, I've, I remember when we did the population density, you know, about how many people had marijuana cards, the CDC should have been like here, just like what is going on in Santa Barbara because everybody's got glaucoma and, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's just terrible. But so, but I mean, again, it's, it's part of the, you know, I've, I've thought about it with my kids. I mean, you know, and just saying, yeah, there's a lot of things in the world that, you know, are legal that may not be beneficial. So it is, yeah, I'd say the stigma is removed, but I don't know, I don't know that all the larger level, you know, is supposed to pay for all kinds of, you know, the taxes. I don't, I don't know if any of that ever really manifests. In terms of like your work at the Rescue Mission, have yeah. you seen the needle move at all in an either way with the legalization of it? Or is it just sort of been kind of a background policy cultural issue? Well, it is. I mean, because, I mean, there are some, you know, there's, there's a term now in the recovery industry called California sober, <laughs> which means, you know, I, I, I mean, you know, I drink and I don't, I drink and I smoke pot, but I'm not an addict, you know. And I mean, so I would say, I mean, it's, it, it is challenging because, I mean, we are still a sober facility. And so there are people that will come in with marijuana cards and say, I, and it's like, yeah, no, I'm not doing it here. So. Um, yeah, I, so I don't, you know, I, yeah, I think, I, I obviously think everything about, you know, even what I said about sugar, I mean, there are people that will say they're, you know, that it's not addictive, and I don't know enough about brain chemistry, but I know that any kind of behavioral thing, it's, you know, it's certainly not, <laughs> certainly not preventing the chance of getting addicted further down the line, so, yeah. yeah what percentage of people, I know people are always arguing about the homeless and Oh, so many of these people just want to be homeless. What percent would you say that come through the rescue mission what? are that in fall into that category versus those that are out on the street because of, you know they lost their job? Yeah, I would say ten percent, fifteen percent. The other ones want something better. Yeah. They just don't know how to get that. And they I just have the resources, but they want to have it. Yeah, and I would question. I mean, when I when I have conversations with somebody saying they want to be homeless. I mean, the first thing hits me is, okay, that is such a loss of dignity, you know, that you would end up saying, this is okay for me. And so sometimes I wonder if, you know, I can't speak for every individual, but, you know, it's a little bit like, you know, <laughs> if I was a little kid and all my playmates weren't nice to me and I said, I want to be alone. It's like, no, I don't. I'm just shifting the table on them. So, I mean, what we see at the rescue mission, I mean, what's interesting is, you know, that the number of homeless that are, uh, you know, there's an awful lot that fend for themselves. We see people that have lost that ability because, I mean, there's, you know, people that, you know, don't make much of a nuisance and they just kind of are used to doing it, but it's, it takes a lot of work to be homeless. So, you know, live in your car and take care. So, you see, yeah. You talked to a woman not too long ago who said it's kind of, a switch got flipped in her head after about 30 days of being homeless. Hmm. And she was pretty high functioning and she kind of indicated that that was a common experience. And up to that 30 day point, she was fighting it and mm -hmm. she kind of gave in to it. I could see that. I could see that. I mean, I think in, I don't work a lot in the shelter, but there are. There are definitely people that come in where, you know, the staff can tell you right away, hey, this is this person's first time because everything is just new to them. And, you know, we're, we're conditioned to, if we're going to get a service somewhere, it's like, okay, where do we pay? What do we do? And so just having somebody, you know, so yeah, I think there's a point though. I think you're right though, that it's like, and then there, 
people that come in that may be somewhat itinerant that are you know specifying you know what kind of soap they want or you know you're like do we have clothes you know it's like well so yeah I think there's a point where it unfortunately does become instilled in somebody and that's again I think to me what I see is just a tragic loss of dignity that you're like this is okay for me this is how I'm going to do it so yeah Nikki um so obviously like faith in Jesus is a super important part of the rescue mission and recovery mm -hmm. efforts I don't know can you say some more the role that faith plays in mm -hmm. recovery or if either of you can speak to that you first sure <laughs> um Jesus is king. He's my savior. You know, I wouldn't be able to stand up here without that. You know, you see, I can barely get that. That's stuff that I always put down inside because, like, there's my life and then there's my work life. And they're both pretty close. You know, they're both pretty close. And I get an amazing opportunity to be able to serve Christ and to be able to serve others who are broken. And, you know, I like. I hear the stats and I see that, but from what I've seen just based upon my experience, for 90% of them, selfish, self-centered, full of fear, um, self-seeking. They're so used to those behaviors that I was used to that you'll ride it until the wheels fall off. <laughs> and then when the wheels fall off and then you're sorry, over-remorseful, you know, so, you know, they don't have God in their lives. They don't have Christ in their lives. And if they did, well, then they've forgotten about it. And it's like the rescue mission, uh, I mean, God is there. God is there. You know, I can, I can feel it. And so um, we don't always talk about Jesus there, especially when the line when I have 86 people coming in and then I've got to do the women and there's two of us on deck and we're moving around. But, you know, when I do have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with somebody or I tell them my experience and my strength and my hope, I always mention God and I always mention Christ because um, that's what got me here and that's what pulled me out. I mean, we have a lot of things going on there right now, a lot of things that are positive and a few things that are negative with, with our guests. And so these are the ones that I will pull into the office and I will talk to them and I will tell them, hey, look, man, I used to be... I know what you're going through. Believe me, I do. You know, I lost everything. And we have people that go to the mission and graduate the program, and they fall out. Why? Selfishness, self-centered, full of fear. You know, it's fear is a great motivator in life. And if you don't have, if you don't have Christ in your life, then you're doing it on your own. You're, you're like running your own program. So, and as far as the marijuana thing, I can just respond to that. If I start using pot, I'll be using meth in six months. Pot won't be enough. Because I'm, I'm of the hopeless variety, which means that anything I put into my body is going to reactivate that. Hmm. And being a drug addict and an alcoholic is, is, is not something that I thought in fifth grade I was going to stand up and be. But that's what I am. And the only way out of that is through Christ for me. Some people do meetings. Some people do that. The only way out of that is to get on my knees and ask God to forgive me for what I've done. Yeah. Well, I think, Nikki, too, that it's, you know, I mean, one of the things that... Uh, I mean, we, we've changed our approach a little bit because the class, you know, I, I feel like we want people to know Jesus. I mean, it pervades everything we do. Uh, the problem is, is that, first of all, addicts are incredible chameleons and survivors. And so, 
Um, you know, there are people that come into our program and they know more Bible verses than I will ever know in my life. I mean, they know it well and they've spent it, you know, they either went to kind of more of an authoritarian program, spent time in prison, you know, and they just know, and, you know, and that's great, but, you know, the problem is, is that you will adapt to the culture, you know, if, if you're there. And so what we kind of see, we see that kind of heavy religious spirit where it's like, okay, they think this is a faith-based organization, so they're just... They're gonna, they're gonna, you know, play along, and um, and to me, I feel like, you know, I was involved in, you know, a ministry like that, and, you know, there's a place for it. It's great, but I think the thing we want to have is kind of something that's genuine and transformative, and um, I think the challenge that we, you know, like first, you know, what the classic rescue mission formula is, you know. If you sit through the chapel service, then you'll get fed, then you'll get a place to eat. We stopped doing that about 12 years ago. There were a few circles that that was very inflammatory because it was like, you know. But to me, it was just if somebody is simply coming to you, you know, because they're hungry and they need a place to sleep and you're making them go through some kind of a religious, I just I can't see Jesus doing that, you know. And so... You know, we still try to have a, I mean, it's been a little bit difficult with COVID, but, you know, ideally we'd love to have a religious service every day at the rescue mission, but you eat and then you get invited and would love to have you come. And, and for the treatment program, the treatment program is a faith-based program. Um, you're going to go to church, you're going to have Bible study, but there's no point when you are forced to adopt any creed. And there are judges actually that will, you know, if somebody's asking to be to you know be referred to the rescue mission, he'll, they'll say, you, know, "You realize that's a faith-based program." And he's like, "Yeah." He's like, "Okay, because don't come back here and complain about Bible studies." Um, <laughs> but the fact is, is that you know we have you know our hope is that people are going to be transformed. But on the other hand, if they're not, that's okay too. I'd rather they have an experience of you know the people of God loved me like nobody loved me before. If that's what they come away with, I'm good with that. So you know, yeah. Do you use the life recovery Bible? Um, yeah, we do. I think we do. Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah. I just wanted to point out for any of those here who don't know it that the life recovery Bible shows a correspondence, verse to verse, for all the twelve steps of yeah. AA mm -hmm. to biblical uh, yeah. verses. Yeah. And so, I mean, twelve-step program is really a Christian-based program. You know, they say higher power. Mm -hmm. All you have to do is realize who that is. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. Uh, it all fits. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Great. So, yeah, I think we're at, we're at time. I know you Thanks. might have one more slide. Oh, oh, I do. Oh, you yeah. did. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I put that in there. I kind of wasn't sure. But, you know, this is, um, so I kind of thought, um, when Nikki asked me to do this, I said, you know, I love the fact that this was the um, God with us in the mess, because if you read The Independent, you know, I kind of have had my share of grief and trauma, and maybe this sets Russell up a little bit for, you know, <laughs> but one thing that's helped me in addition to write is just writing poetry, and kind of when I, kind of part of what has gotten me through is honestly, you know, I'm limping along with other people who are, I mean, every single person that comes to the rescue mission, you know, they're not sure what next week is going to look like. And all we say is, hey, get up and do today. So kind of on my, every now and again, something came to me and I post a poem. So I brought along a poem that uh, I wrote kind of actually in 2019. 
um, and says, put down the scalpel, take off the apron, no need for the broom or the gloves, too many words only bring more confusion, the deepest mining won't unearth the reason or uncover any satisfactory solution. The suggestions were all obvious before they were made. None would be as welcome as some company in the helplessness, another to simply marvel at the mess. Yearning to draw close enough to feel the fire's warmth against my cheeks, yet primed to leap, leap back into darkness, your eyes know, your touch welcomes me where a grab will scare me off. Let me hear your small talk, let me chuckle at your jokes, not looking to be fixed, just to be okay for a moment. No right thing to say. Words don't bring the comfort of a companion in the quiet. Mm -hmm. And Jesus, we're just grateful for this day and for the fact that you walk with us and may we walk with those uh, and may we sit with those who, who struggle and suffer and be your presence to them. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thanks for having us.